All right. So as you know, we are looking at um, places in Scripture that give us these wonderful uh, depictions and descriptions of our God, whom we worship. And then we take that understanding and begin to apply it to our daily Christian life, making that wonderful tight connection between doctrine and how we live in light of it. It's crucial that those two be tied together so we never have this idea that if there's some difficult thing to understand, if there's some doctrine that we, uh, we find challenging, that somehow that means that it has no effect on us in our daily personal walk with the Lord. In fact, everything about our lives is driven by our understanding of truth, our understanding and grasp of God and our relationship with him, who he is, and what it therefore means practically as to its implications for our lives. And we've been looking at uh, his character and his perfections. We have talked a lot already and seen from Scripture the transcendence of our great God, the, the immensity of his character and his person and his sovereign purposes, the fact that he is in control of all of it. We began to look last time at the doctrine of uh, his providence or his providential workings, the doctrine of concurrence, how it is that through all of the ways of life, human choices as moral agents and the circumstances of life, that, that God concurrently is working his ultimate will in and through all of these things without any flaw in any of it. And that includes evil, things that go against what he has declared to be his moral righteousness and his purposes and his commands, the will that he has called his creation to follow and get in line with, even those things that are violated in a fallen world, <clears throat> they work concurrently by his power and his infinite wisdom and his glory to carry out exactly what God wants to carry out. We've seen this all over the scriptures already, but just a reminder, Ephesians 1.11, that very tight statement about the ultimate will of God, which also sweeps in all the events of life so that there's this concurrence going on. God is working out his ultimate will according to his counsels. Counsel of his will stands, his ultimate will stands. It is of course, reflected in moments of worship that burst forth from the pen of Bible writers. Paul in Romans 11 says at the end of that chapter, for from him and through him and to him are all things. It's a comprehensive statement, not only an expression of worship, but a theology of God's sovereign purposes. It includes his power and his ability and his perfections and this great idea of the concurrence, the doctrine of concurrence. God then preserves and directs 
and purposes glory through his creation. The very end of that statement in Romans 11, Paul says, to him be the glory forever and ever. And so we looked last time at how this doctrine of concurrence means, as the word of God indicates, that God preserves his creation. But he also directs it at every level, and we wanted to look a little bit at that. He directs his creation. He reveals himself as governing all things in his creation and does so in accordance with the free actions of his moral creatures, and he does so through the inner workings and outworkings of all that takes place in his creation. Anything animate and all things inanimate. <clears throat> so he's working all things after the counsel according to his will or of the counsel of his will. And in directing his creation then, the word of God indicates that it is comprehensive. So for example, he directs everything that is inanimate in his creation. Job 37, 9 through 13. Out of the south comes the storm. Out of the north, the cold. From the breath of God, ice is made and the expanse of the waters is frozen. With moisture, he loads the thick cloud. He disperses the cloud of his lightning and changes direction, turning around by his guidance that it may do whatever he commands it on the face of the inhabited earth. We don't move such things, God moves them. Whether for correction, Job says, or for his world, or for loving kindness, he causes it to happen. He's the first cause directing all such things. And there are other places you could go, but we're just summarizing a few ways that the Bible says he directs. He directs animals, Matthew 10, 29. Not one small bird like a sparrow will hop or alight on the ground. The text says fall to the ground, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the bird has died as is often assumed. It, it means that the bird moves on the ground, hops on the ground, alights on the ground, lands somewhere on the ground. Not any of that happens apart from God, the Father. He directs events, striking statements like Proverbs 16, 33, the lot is cast into the lap, such as they would do to uh, make decisions sometimes, throw uh, the lots and see where they land to make some decision between partners in some exchange. And while the lot is cast into the lap, it's every decision is from the Lord. He determines it. <clears throat> if you want to try to put your stewardship of life and resources to chance, uh, and that stewardship, therefore, you assume is controlled by you by probability in the throwing of the dice, you would be foolish because... As Proverbs 16 indicates, chance is nothing. There's no such thing as chance. You may do that in the freedom of being a moral agent, and you may live quite comfortably with whatever happens in its outcome, but its every decision does come from the Lord. So your stewardship commands, the things commanded of you to take care of, you'd be 
a fool to lay them on the altar of something you think uh, might be in your favor by chance because God directs every event. He also directs every nation. Dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Psalm 22, verse 28. I mentioned to you Acts 17 when Paul was preaching at Mars Hill because he says in verse 26 that, he, that God, this God whom they worship in ignorance, uh, they bow down to idols foolishly, but they are the offspring of the ultimate creator, the only living and true God, and he's the one who made from every nation. He makes from one every nation to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. So he's the one that began the human race, and from there all the nations go. He's determined times and boundaries. That is to say, ethnic groups, ethnic peoples, the spread of them, the eradication of them, the removal of them, the adjustment of them, the changing times and seasons, the places they live, the lands they inhabit, the limits. It's all determined by God. Job 12, verse 23, he makes nations great and he destroys them, enlarges nations, and he leads them he also directs human affairs. Jeremiah 10, 23. I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his steps. That is to say, he's not autonomous, even as a moral agent, even as a free moral agent. He's not autonomously free. In that sense, then, speaking theologically, he's not libertarianly free. He is still in the concurrent working of God. Proverbs 20, 24, a man's steps are, they're ordered by the Lord. A man's steps are ordered by the Lord. Proverbs 16, verse 9, a man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. So God, in this great work of concurrence, in his Sovereignty is not only preserving his creation, but he's directing it. Everything inanimate, everything in the animal world, in the global world of plant life, all of these dynamics, they all are directed by God. He directs events, nations, and every aspect of human affairs. Now, as we look at this reality, already you can begin to sense what this should mean and might mean for us as his people, his creatures, but also those who know him by special grace in redemption. This reality is to humble the believer. It is to secure the believer. It is to comfort the believer. And at times it is to sober and unnerve the believer. We are to find in it security, but at the same time, reverence and sobriety. God is meticulously working in this great work of concurrence. And the reason that is sobering is because moral agency is also a part of this world he has created. 
And so we come to begin to tread on very holy ground when we think about his meticulous sovereignty. Because we are free moral agents. We do make choices every day that have moral implications. Yet somehow behind them all is this providential hand of the Lord working concurrently through them to bring about this unalterable and ultimate purpose. So then our minds immediately go to the problem of the existence of evil. The fact that evil exists. We live in a world that is fallen. We see the effects of evil. The principle of evil is not unknown to us. And so when we know the Bible teaches the doctrine of concurrence, that God is working all things for his grand purposes and his glory, and yet that outworking includes a world that has evil in it, moral evil, and God says that moral evil has eternal implications that are dis that devastating, then our minds have a moral or an ethical or even a theological dilemma. And so as we're sobered by the doctrine of concurrence, humbled by it, we, we are unnerved to a degree by this great reality because evil men make evil choices which are immeasurably destructive and yet the Bible teaches that God is meticulous in his working out of his ultimate will which therefore then in our understanding must include a purpose for evil, a purpose for it, an outworking of it concurrently. Now, we know this because if you look at places in Scripture where circumstances are written about, such as back at the end of the book of Genesis, Genesis 50, there are statements made in this narrative. As you know, this narrative unfolded with the great story of the patriarchs and Joseph and his brothers and the evil that was perpetrated. It was evil in the heart of some brothers. It was favoritism, sinful favoritism in the heart of a father. These are, uh, this is a family that is part of the promised line of the Messiah. This is the people of God, and yet there is sinful family relationships and rivalry and hatred and bitterness and evil intention. And in that jealousy and evil, a, a devastating plot was perpetrated, and Joseph was uh, harmed and conspired against and thrown to the dogs and then brought back out as further uh, 
implementation of the conspiracy and and sent off into slavery to a pagan nation away from his father and more lies given to the family to cover the whole thing up. And you remember that as he went into Egypt, all that took place, the latter chapters of Genesis, more moral evil, a pagan nation, con conspiracies, uh, slander of his reputation, imprisonment that was false, all kinds of ways that the providence and concurrent working of God had to bring about any kind of rescue if it was going to happen at all. And then through the set of circumstances that unfold in the narrative, Joseph rises to power. He literally is given half the kingdom as to its authority and usefulness. There's no one outside of the ultimate Pharaoh that is more powerful in the land at that point than Joseph. And in a time of great famine, he is the one that in the wisdom given to him by God and now the power and authority given to him by a pagan ruler, he's the one who prepares the grain and the supplies to feed nations around them and the people in that country. Through which then, as you remember, Joseph uh, begins to preserve the line of his people. And so in all of that, Joseph is seeing the doctrine of concurrence work out. But the history of it in moral choices has evil all over the place. <clears throat> and at the end of it all, you remember that those brothers came and ended up in front of this great ruler, Joseph. And they fell down before him and said, we are your slaves. Of course, you remember that he could have taken their life several times. He put them to the test, etc. And then, of course, wanted his father brought. This was a, a crushing time for anyone in the famine, but particularly Joseph's brothers and their father because starvation was on the horizon and they were not a beloved people. And he recognized them. They didn't recognize him. And, and of course, then when he showed himself to them, they were shocked at his disposition toward them. But here was the reason. Verse 19, Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for I am in God's place. Now, it's interesting. At that point, you remember that we talked last time about the the error of the process theologians or the open theists who believe that God just sort of responds to future human choices which he was not aware of, does not ordain, does not have control over, but he resourcefully responds to them in order to make good come out of evil in some way, circumstantially, that logically makes sense to human beings and reasonably makes sense to our moral uh, sensibilities. And so by the time you hear Joseph say that, it sounds like it could very well be a process theology at work there. And yet verse 20 settles the matter. As for you, <clears throat> as 
workers of iniquity in it, as those who meant this for evil. You're the moral agent. You meant it for evil. You are culpable and guilty. That's why it's emphatic. As for you, you intended and carried out this evil. But, and here's the verbal idea, unmistakable, God meant it for good. In order to do, there's the working of a concurrence, right? The directing of creation, the directing of events, the directing of people. All those human free choices from the powerful empirical ruler of Pharaoh down through cupbearers and guards imprisoning Joseph to Potiphar's wife to Joseph's brothers to the lies conspired and circumstances to an evil nation taking him into slavery and no one in his homeland knowing all of those moral choices. God was doing something with a purpose in all of it. To do this day what has been accomplished to keep many people alive. So existence in judgment. As for you, that's what you did. But while you were meaning it for evil, God was meaning it, doing something through that concurrently, intending it for good. Don't mistake the language. You intended it for evil, and while you were intending it for evil and carrying it out, God, in your carrying it out, was intending to do something glorious for his grand purposes. That is as difficult for moral agents to, to accept as it is to understand. But that is what the text teaches that evil is a part of God's purpose. Now, now that when we say those things, we are now in the waters of the area of doctrine called theodicy, where we try to find biblical warrant for, and therefore human articulations of, how it is that a holy God, who is himself not evil, is vindicated in the existence of evil. Theodicy is just a compound word. Theo for God and the word for justify or, you know, the Greek word decay, to, to justify or to vindicate, to see as justifiable. So we're into an understanding of how God is vindicated. And of course, the old dilemma is easy to see. If God is holy and not evil and nothing from him that emanates from his perfections can be evil, and yet evil exists, then we have to ask questions about the perfections of God, the character of God. This is why it's it seems sometimes like transcendent theology that doesn't make any sense for our life, but actually it makes a tremendous amount of sense when your feet are living out in an evil world and a fallen world. There is a comfort to this and an unnerving sense of it. The comfort of it is 
Lord, people mean it for evil. You mean it for good. Lord, bad things happen, circumstances happen, even moral agents do evil things. But I know this, you concurrently work through it to do something that I have to know is more grand and more glorious. I have to have had that revealed to me as well so that it doesn't violate whom you've said you are. So here's the dilemma. Is God omnipotent? Is he all-powerful? The scriptures say that he is. He has revealed that he is. God is all-powerful. And you can go from the days of creation all the way through the scriptures, and God says he is the one that upholds all things by the power that he has. He upholds it all, calls it into existence. It's nothing for him. It doesn't diminish his power to create what we see, the energy forces in the universe, which we study now and understand at some level. The energy is astounding, breathtaking, unfathomable energy. God calls it into existence by his creative power through his word, which is creative. The davar of God, the word of God is creative. It's animate. It's, it's self-existing. It's self-animating. Life is in God because life is self, God is self-existent and self-sufficient. The doctrine of aseity, we call it. So he is omnipotent, all-powerful. But then if he's all-powerful and evil exists, then the question is, is he a good God? Because if he were a good God, he'd be willing to stop evil or create a world without it. At least insofar as our moral framework and makeup would deem it. Because he made us in his image. We understand morality. We understand its consequences. We also live in a fallen and evil world, and we ourselves only have the taste of evil in our mouths by nature because we're born corrupt. So, so something's got to give here. Either God isn't good and willing, therefore, to do good and get rid of evil and stop it, though he's powerful enough to do it, or he is willing and he is good, but because evil exists, he must not be powerful enough. Something escapes his power. Something's outside of his power. So when we talk about the vindication of God or a theodicy, this is what we're troubled by when we think about how a doctrine like concurrence affects our lives. We have to come to grips somehow with what this means. What are we to do with what the Bible reveals about the omnipotence of God and at the same time the moral perfection of God? He is perfectly holy and good. And if he's powerful enough and good, therefore he's willing to stop evil or eradicate it, do something about it, create a world without it. 
But then evil does exist. And so how is he vindicated? How is he justified? And so I've already intimated the way that some try to solve the problem and have historically. There are all kinds of theodicies that are a part of the explanation or ways to explain it. One I've already alluded to, and that is the idea that in order for God to have genuine relationships with the world he chose to create and the creatures in it he chose to create in his image, an authentic relationship requires that there be libertarian free will. In other words, he, the, the, it is alleged that he created us completely autonomously free so that we act as free moral agents without this doctrine of concurrence, without him directing mankind. The, the lot is cast and it is not directed by the Lord. The king's heart is in the hands of the Lord like channels of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. No, that can't mean what it means because we do what we want to do autonomously. We have libertarian free will. So God doesn't know the future, doesn't know what we're going to choose. He's resourceful, but he can't possibly know that. Otherwise, he'd have ultimate control and we'd be utter robots. That is supposed to solve the problem of evil in the world. Men made evil choices. They were evil. God is scrambling to do something about it. Maybe even not scrambling, but ingen you know, his ingenuity and his his power and his cleverness and his resourcefulness is responding to it to make something good come of it. But he is not, uh, he has not created a world where he is ordaining and using and directing these things of evil for some greater purpose like that. That would not vindicate God at all, so says that theodicy. And of course, the problem with that is that, first of all, the question is one of a metaphysical kind. Can God create a creature that is autonomous from him? If the Bible says he upholds all things by the word of his power, if Job says if we removed his breath, we would all fall to the ground, if he sustains all of our breath, if in him we move and exist and have our being, Acts 17, then how could it be that he could create a being autonomous from him? We would, we would be God and he would cease to be God because he wouldn't have absolute, as Jonathan Edwards said, complete control of everything by his power. He wouldn't be omnipotent. Therefore, he'd cease to be God, and we would be equal to him if we were created autonomous. So that doesn't solve the problem. But even worse, he makes the promise in Genesis 50, verse 20, that you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. So that the Bible reveals that evil acts and the intentions behind them of free moral agents are part of a grander plan in which God, through his power and willingness, is purposing to do something better, greater, more glorious uh, in the universe. Well, in a libertarian free will universe, he couldn't guarantee that. In fact, let's just think about the greatest evil ever perpetrated. Acts chapter 2. Look at Acts chapter 2. Now we start to see how a libertarian theodicy 
cannot possibly work. In Acts chapter 2, here you have this great sermon being preached by Peter. And you know these words very well, but they are striking nonetheless. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Verse 22, Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs. So God is working supernaturally. They know Jesus as a man. He is the Nazarene. He is fully human, but he's attested to you, verified to you, proven to you by God with the power of God attending his life and message and ministry. God did these things through him in your midst, just as you yourself know, and this man God delivered over to you, and it was by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Foreknowledge meaning his what purpose he loved, what purpose he wanted to accomplish, what purpose he had ordained, what purpose he had decreed. God's love of his glory is wrapped up in that. God's love of redemption is wrapped up in that. It is the foreknown plan of God. Jesus is foreknown before the foundation of the world, Peter says in 1 Peter. So a, the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God is, is how Jesus was delivered over Two men who nailed him to a cross, these were lawless men, and put him to death. So the death of Jesus Christ came about by the hands of evil men intending to do evil. They are culpable, they are guilty, and yet behind it all is this power and willingness of God in his character to carry something out through this evil act. Later, it gets more specific in chapter 4 when it is being preached again, this same truth. And verse 27 of chapter 4, when again, the text says, Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. So gathered together, obviously evil, obviously fallen people gathered against Jesus Christ, whom you anointed, you, O oh God, Herod, Pontius Pilate, a wicked king, puppet king, a usurper, and the local magistrate, evil men conspiring against Jesus Christ, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. The nation and communities rejected his outright message, even the people of Israel, but they were according to verse 28, in the concurrent working of God's power and plan to do whatever your hand, O God, and your purpose predestined to occur. So we're back then to this question. If God is a good God and therefore willing to, to uh, do good to his creation, stop evil, eradicate evil, thwart evil, not even create it, not, not even ordain its creation. And he has the power to do it, then why does it exist? 
And yet here we see once again in the greatest evil act ever perpetrated, the testimony of Scripture consistently that God is behind it, working through it, ordaining it, controlling its beginning and its outcome. Even though the testimony of God in his word is that he himself is not evil. Evil cannot emanate from the perfections of God as an intrinsic or ontological reality. In other words, there's nothing evil about God, so evil can't come from his nature. At least in, in the sense that he's ethically or morally evil. But the scriptures tell us that though he is holy and righteous and intrinsically so, he directs, ordains, and carries out everything in his creation, including evil, for his powerful and grand and glorious ends, which he has also decreed and ordained. Isaiah 45, 7, I form light and create darkness. And yet 1 John 1, 5 says, in him there's no darkness at all. Isaiah 45, 7, I make well and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. I create it. Those words are unmistakable in the Hebrew. But Psalm 5, verse 4 says, You are not a God who delights in wickedness, and evil cannot dwell with you. So evil isn't ontologically a part of you, intrinsically a part of you, ethically or morally emanating from you in that way. And yet God says, I create calamity. Habakkuk 1.13, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. So as we develop our understanding of how God is vindicated by his revelation in these things, and we try to think through these dilemmas in theodicy, we know this. Though God controls both good and evil, he does not approve or condone, approve of or condone evil, nor is he tainted by it. He is morally pure, holy, and good by nature, and his disposition Revealed to us, his disposition toward evil is always to hate it and oppose it with a holy disdain. So in that sense, evil doesn't touch God so as to mean that he's less than good and holy and perfect and righteous. Yet, we must accept that he has ordained it. He uses it, ordains it for a greater purpose. It must, in that sense, then be a part of his glory and plan. It must be a part of reflecting his glory and his plan. It must be a part of, not, not in the sense that there's evil coming from him, but a part of his plan to manifest what Paul said at the end of Romans 11, from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory. It must be ordained by him as a part of reflecting what he 
in all of his infinitude and perfections, desires to manifest about who he is, his glory, the sum total of his perfections. Evil fits into that plan. It is a part of it. How is he able to do this? Well, the scriptures do not fully explain it. Without apology, the Bible declares that God is sovereign and also that he hates evil. Yet for his glory and for the good of his redeemed and redemption as part of his plan, which reflects his glory, he directs all evil. He ordains that it would happen and uses it and accomplishes his ultimate will through it. That's amazing. It's amazing because evil and horrific suffering are not morally good things. They are evil things, morally evil, and we see them that way and should. So when we as believers see or experience evil, it is right to consider that it is not good at all. It is suffering um, because of moral evil. So it's not morally good when evil happens. We don't become so enthralled with the idea that God uses it, ordains it, and directs it for his glory that we don't live in response to it as a moral, uh, as a moral entity substandard of all that is good and righteous. It is ethically, morally wrong, bad, evil. It's not good. We don't rejoice in unrighteousness. Evil is never to be rejoiced over simply because we have God's promise it'll turn out for good. Pain is horrific. E affliction, evil, death, these are the result of sin. These are enemies of Christ. As Bruce Ware states, it's quite a different thing to feel good about God in the midst of suffering. He's right. Evil is bad. Suffering in a fallen world is a horrible experience. But we have the promise that God who lives in us is using what is inherently bad, ordaining what is inherently bad, directing it to carry out a, a purely good and holy and righteous end that will totally manifest his glory in a way that he must manifest it. Now, this is, of course, how we are to think about this problem of evil. Scott Christensen's new work on it, it's interesting that as you get into theodicies, you, you see people trying to solve it. I told you a little bit about the compatibilistic worldview and the trying to solve the problem of evil, where they said, well, this is the best of all worlds God could have created to accomplish his great purposes. And that's halfway there. It's three quarters of the way there. It's not totally the language of scripture. So it almost sounds mechanistic. Well, this is the best of all worlds God could have created in order to accomplish what he wanted to create and so create and, and accomplish. So, so therefore we accept it. But actually Christensen goes one step further and I think gets closer to biblical terminology when he develops or formulates what he calls a greater glory viewpoint, a greater glory theodicy. That is to say that God's ultimate purpose, Christensen says, 
in freely creating the world is to supremely magnify the riches of his glory to all his creatures. Now, we've said that in here when we said, look, once God determined or desired within the inter-Trinitarian union to create, then anything he creates must reflect his glory. And his glory is the sum total of his perfections. So we've always said, and historically in our study of scripture, it has been, is borne out, that whatever God does, he does for the reflecting of the sum total of his perfections in all eternity in a way that he must. Look, if he's going to, he's satisfied in himself. He doesn't need to manifest his glory to anything if he decides not to create. But since he did decide to create, then his creation must reflect his perfections top to bottom even if it includes a fall, because a fall assumes then a redemption of that fall, which assumes a reflection of the power of God in ways that you would not have seen had there been no fall. So when God desired to create, then his creation by that very determination must eventually and in eternity reflect his perfections. Then if he desires to create man and create him in his image, to reflect his glory. And then he determines and ordains also that there will be a fall so that there will be a redemption. Then it must mean that there is a greater reflection of his glory purposed by God through such things that he would not and could not have reflected in the way he wants to in any other ultimate way. So when we have a dilemma, is God powerful all-powerful, yes. Is he good and perfect and holy? Yes. Well, then if evil exists, how does he get vindicated? This is a great way to look at it as the Bible seems best to reveal it to us, though there are mysteries in it. It is the greater glory vindication that God, when he determined to create this world, and his human beings who alone bear his image, he was doing so to magnify the riches of his glory to his creation, particularly to his creatures, in a way that would necessitate a fall and evil and sin to be rescued and redeemed and atoned for through God's glorious purpose in a Redeemer. So Christensen says it this way, God's glory is supremely magnified then in the atoning work of Christ, which is the sole means of accomplishing redemption for human beings. And redemption is unnecessary unless human beings have fallen into sin. Therefore, the fall of humanity is necessary to God's ultimate purpose in creating the world. That's right. I think that's the way to state it. So when an evil befalls you, you don't say, I'm glad that's over. Or I wish that didn't happen. You might say the fall is terrible, sin is terrible, evil is terrible. That's a horrific evil. That causes pain and suffering. We live in that. We are imminent and near that. We are right around that. So we experience that both objectively and subjectively, and we say what God says of it. I hate evil. I hate sin. I, I would love redemption. I would love God to be vindicated, his perfections vindicated, his glory established, and the whole earth filled with his glory. 
That's what we say with reference to something bad that happens, even that which happens to us. On the other hand, we also are encouraged and unnerved by the reality of the power and goodness of God to use it all for an even grander reflection of his glory that we cannot fathom. Now, that makes the evil that happens in your and my life seem where it ought to be in perspective, very much a part of a much grander plan. And since God did not tell us, he did not take us into the future and show us what it's going to look like so that we would be satisfied here and now to go through with it, he calls us to trust that that is his purpose and it will be like nothing we could ever have fathomed for God to reflect and magnify his glory in that way. Having ordained a fall and these things and then brought about its redemption and restoration. Sometimes we think, well, if evil had never happened, it would seem to me the world would be the same. God could have reflected his perfections. If, he, if he's glorious and you can never add to his glory, it's just a matter of magnifying his glory through whatever he creates. We don't add to his glory intrinsically, but whatever he creates must reflect it, and so that sort of magnifies it, and he loves to do that apparently, or he wouldn't have created anything. Well, then in his creating the world, couldn't he have just created it And there was no diminishing of it in some sin or fall or any of those kinds of things. Couldn't he have then through all eternity just created it and it magnifies his glory as is, since you can't add to it? Well, the answer to that question is, well, then there are some aspects of what we know about his glory that would not have been known. And they all surround this whole idea of redemption, which is in his perfections. Mercy, love, compassion, peacemaking, power to restore, overturning evil, accomplishing a a purpose through something meant for evil. How about his glorious holiness, which would have been reflected in purity with no fall, but far more magnified in judging evil? far more magnified. I love the way Christensen puts it. Sometimes we see that there's this creation in holiness and then a fall and then back to normal. Couldn't he have just skipped the fall and just come over here to normal? Like the whole process of creation to reflect his glory in the end was sort of a U-shape. Oh, no. Christensen's right. It's, it's more like the letter J. It started here, then there's a fall, but restoration and magnification of his perfections in ways we would have never seen makes it far higher, a glory far greater. And all of that could only be accomplished through Christ, through this marvelous plan for God himself to enter his fallen creation as one of us, so that we can see his glory as a man, the God-man. Glory as of the only one from the Father, unique, 
full of grace and truth. And then that God-man, the second Adam, would be the redemption, the power, the restoration, all the way to his death, all the way to the putting of sin and its consequences on him as a substitute. That grand plan would never have been known, never magnify in all eternity a an aspect of the depth and profound nature of God's character that we never would have seen, mercy and love at astounding levels. This is the creator God who creates and then enters his creation as one of us to atone for these things, to show us mercy and love at depths we never would have known. Listen, that is indeed far greater than Adam and Eve knew before the fall. Far greater. That's right. Listen to Jonathan Edwards. The design of the Spirit of God is not to represent God's ultimate end as manifold, but as singular. For it appears that all that is ever spoken of in the Scripture as an ultimate end of God's works is included in that one phrase, the glory of God. The magnification of God's glory is his ultimate purpose in creating the world. Both the Westminster larger and shorter catechisms affirm that God decrees for his own glory whatsoever comes to pass, end quote. That is Paul in Romans eleven thirty six. 36, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever, amen. God is the creator. He's the sustainer and the goal of all things for his glory. And in Christ is how all that manifestation then centers because Colossians tells us in Colossians 1.16 that by him all things were created, that is the God-man, Jesus Christ, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and, listen to this, for him. So he's ordained evil for a time for the manifestation of his glory. It's for him. To magnify him. That's incredible. That is absolutely incredible. For my own sake, for my own sake, Isaiah 48, 11, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. It's all about the magnification of the glory of God. So there you are in your life and something goes down and something happens and you lose a loved one or your life changes or your economics change or you're devastated by something that destroys reputation and security and comfort and, and there's an unknown on the horizon and the trial just goes on and on and there's no end in sight. This truth takes all of that and begins to put it into the perspective Joseph had. Think about all of the hours and days and months and years of thinking that Joseph must have done, remembering what happened to him, how unjust it was, how wicked it was, how evil it was, how his flesh must have railed for an answer to justice, Lord, vindication, something's got to give. This is not right. 
And then just when he probably had his theology working for him in Egypt, and just when he's, you know, in the jail cell, and, or just when he's in the palace life before he's gone to jail, and he's thinking, okay, okay, things are starting to look up. God's responding to my prayers. And then Potiphar's wife slanders his reputation, and he's unjustly thrown in jail, and he's by himself again. No father, no brothers, uh, no country of his own, no reputation. It has all been taken from him. And it hasn't been taken from him in some calamity like Job that, that Satan is perpetrating, that God has allowed and, and ordained, but Job knows nothing about it and, and can happen to anybody. Oh, the roof fell in and all your servants are dead and all your family are dead and then this happened. Look, unforeseen natural evils and calamities in a fallen world, we accept those even a lot more than a moral evil done against us. And here's Joseph with a moral evil, years of it. How tempted he must have been to say, Lord, are you good? Because if you're good, then you must not be powerful, like you say. And if you're powerful and accept that you're omnipotent, you must not be willing or good. But no, he, he grew in his faith. He began to understand. You remember what he said about the whole slander of his reputation, that he's somehow gone after Potiphar's wife in some salacious interest? Remember what he said? How can I do this to my God? It was his theology proper that tamed his heart. Men, that is what this is supposed to do to you and I to pass on to our children and to our wives a view that takes us from the imminent involvement in daily life, in the horrors of evil and difficulty, and pulls us up to this greater perspective. What people mean for evil, what a fallen world does to me in its badness, God is intending to magnify his person and his glory in all eternity in a way that will bring restoration. How do I know this? I have the guarantee of a risen Savior who was foretold and came as promised, and the acts of evil men determined and ordained by God put him to death, and my sins were put on the cross to redeem me. And I am in his grip. So whatever's happened to me today... Man, I have a perspective that rises above the horror of the current ache in my heart and tears in my eyes. That changes everything. And so we don't only pray, Lord, give me peace, comfort, relief from this evil. But we pray, but your, your name and your glory and your will be done. Because I know you purpose something far, far more grand than that. Let your glory be over all the earth. This is what difference the doctrine of concurrence makes in our life. God directs his creation, even evil. And our, our understanding of that may have mystery to it. I mean, there, there's some things that happen right in front of us and 
Yes, you believe God is powerful and good, and it will reflect and manifest his glory in, in eternity. But right now, there's nothing about it that makes any sense, especially when it involves the helpless little, little children, especially when it involves that. In reading North American history, I've told you before, it was a savage place. And what they did to little children on a whim doesn't make sense to me. It makes no sense to my moral framework, my makeup. It makes no sense to my mind how a, an adult human being can take a seven-week-old baby and drag it through cactus to kill it just for entertainment. Then my mind goes to, okay, it doesn't make sense to me, but nor am I owed any other explanation than my God, who is unfathomable and inscrutable, unsearchable his ways. Moreover, do I think I couldn't perpetrate that evil? We I mean, talk about humbling. We love to separate ourselves from the monsters. But for the grace of God and the redemption of Christ, we would, in our capacity for evil, do the same things against God and are capable of doing the same things against humans. So it is humbling and, and uh, gives us perspective. It's, it's calibrating. It causes us to be in awe of God's purposes. I even think sometimes in my mind, then God's glory and the reflection of it in eternity must be so profoundly breathtaking that I, I, I won't ever really know anything about that except by faith now until I get there because, because he has revealed what he's revealed and that's all he's revealed about it. That too is humbling because then I must stop at the wall of where revelation stops and bow down and worship. So, so we'll talk uh, one more time about how he purposes his glory through it as revealed in scripture next time. But let's, let's, let's just discuss what this brings to your mind because I love the sort of the weightiness of heavy doctrinal dynamics like this, but, but it has practical impact in your life. And you pass this on as a man to your family and your children. How does your wife think about evil and struggle? Do you just sort of leave her in the, in the proverbial dust in these things? Or do you, do you teach your wife and children these things about the reflection of God's glory that's greater than than what we see going on around us. Do you, do you exude it from your life? Do you demonstrate it at work? And so let's talk about it. Keith. When talking about God's sovereignty. Can I have some monitor here, brother? Because that's going way out there and just sounds like uh, tongues speaking. Could I have an interpreter, Keith? I think there Brent's going back there something. to interpret for you. He's got the gift. I'll go to the Pentecostal church on the street. Um, Crank it up. 
When talking about God's sovereignty... Hold on, we don't have any monitor. Okay, go ahead. Ask your question. Okay. When talking about God's sovereignty as it's involved in um, the sin of this world, particularly in our individual sinful choices, where do you, if anywhere, draw the line of how um, intimately God is involved in our personal sinful choices. So first of all, um, and, and I know, you know, essentially what you mean, but I like to tweak terminology sometimes. We don't put those lines anywhere. Scripture draws its lines. And so we must think in terms of the terminology God uses. Otherwise, we get into um, merely our logic. And we are created with logic, but the way we, are, we think about and articulate logical conclusions sometimes infringes upon revelation given by God. So we're going to draw the lines there. With regard to the way that God is involved meticulously, okay, the scriptures say that all things are worked out according to the counsel of his own will. There's no way around Ephesians 1.11's tight Greek terminology about all things, all events, all choices, all people, all places. Everything that's going on in the world is fashioned and, and working out, essentially, according to, very important uh, terminology, according to the counsel of his will. And I'm assuming by that, because of what we know in Scripture about the will of God in the guarantee of his promises and carrying them out, that it's his ultimate will being spoken of there. So we would say, we try to put terminology to it, his sovereign purposes and working things out are meticulous. Now, with regard to man's moral agency and the idea that our minds go to, well, does that mean I'm a robot? Does that mean I walk around, I make choices, but I, I'm just waiting for God to sort of make them through me? That would, that's essentially what some people have come to. They are fatalists. Um, uh, even with regard to redemption, there were, there were views that said, we don't act. It's not our will acting. It's God acting through us. Um, <clears throat> it's God believing through us. Those are fatalistic ideas. The Bible does not reveal fatalism because men are culpable for their choices, eternally culpable. Every moral being, including angels, are culpable for their choices. So we are moral agents, we make choices, we have a moral framework by which we make them. But the scriptures are also clear that the heart, the intentions and those dynamics, the Bible is unequivocal when it says things like the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like channels of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. He turns it wherever he wishes. He put it into the king's heart to do a census of the people, which, which he was commanded not to do. So David is guilty of the census. Other texts say Satan put it into his heart, so clearly his own sinful intention is there by his own fallenness, for which he's culpable because he's fallen. It's his own guilt. God doesn't make us fallen. We're born fallen because human nature is fallen. But God says he is meticulously 
in control, ordaining all things. So how can the two be true? I don't draw that line. I don't know where God's character harmonizes those lines. I just have to deal with uh, the actual revelation of it and not a philosophical answer to how they might be compatible. Sometimes the analogy has been given, well, in God's sovereign purposes, he's He's ordained the beginning and the path and the end, and it's a big ship of his sovereignty, and we're on the deck sitting and moving deck chairs around and those kinds of things. But the ship still gets there, and it gets to its destination, but on the ship, while it's going to its destination, he's not really telling us where to move chairs and stuff. We're just doing that. So it was almost the view that he's not meticulous in his sovereignty. And, and I suppose there are good cases for making a framework like that. I don't believe that's true simply because the scriptures, in John Feinberg's classic exegesis of Ephesians 1.11, uh, God working all things after the counsel of his will, that he shows the tightness of the language there. All things cannot mean all things non-meticulous, all things in some big overarching path. J.I. Packer postulated that it was possible, but Feinberg shows in his classic work the language of Ephesians 11 doesn't open it up to merely a sort of direction being ordained while in the middle of it he has no control over what men do. Um, now, the, the accusation then is, well, then if he's meticulously sovereign, then I cannot have any kind of will of my own I cannot be morally responsible for it, therefore, and it must be that human existence is sort of robotic. God is pulling levers, moving things around, ordaining movements. As, as I said, some in the fatalistic worldview um, who, who take it that far logically are accused of being the kind of people who, when they trip and run into something, they they are just glad it's over and wish God wouldn't do that again to them. But the Bible does not reveal that men make choices that way. Adam, even in his perfect state, was not robotic. Even though he was a moral being, he was in a relationship with God, yet understood God was utterly in control of his life and his breath and in him we move and exist. That language is very much meticulous language. Um, he upholds all things by the word of his power. From him and through him and to him are all things. He sustains all things by the word of his power. Job says if he were to take breath away, we would fall down. He's giving you every breath. Well, if he's giving you every breath um, and he's ordained all things for a particular outcome, right? Everything that he's predestined to occur, that's language that speaks of God working concurrently in it meticulously, as, as Bruce Ware tried to demonstrate in his book, God's Lesser Glory. The meticulous sovereignty of God is a testimony of Scripture, and yet the moral agency and culpability of man is uh, the testimony of Scripture. So I don't draw the line. God just puts them right up next to one another and says they're true. You have the same sort of paradoxical idea. They aren't actual antinomies because an antinomy is a contradiction. These aren't 
actual contradictions. They're just ideas that harmonize, but not in our easiest understanding. John 6 is a classic example. Jesus says, you do not believe. That's why you don't come. You don't come because you do not believe. It's your fault. You could come, should come. You have the logic to come, the moral reasoning to come. You know by natural revelation around you, general revelation and and the gospel being given to you that you should come and you should repent. But you're not coming because you don't believe. For which they were held accountable. He tells them in John 8, you die in your sins unless you acknowledge that I am he. You die in your sins. They're yours. You're guilty of them. But he says, they only come in John 6 if the Father draws them. No one comes unless the Father draws them. Now, you would think that the Pharisees at that point would say, what? You just said, I don't believe. And I'm telling you, my unbelief is his fault. God puts those passages right next to one another because each of those truths tell us the reality, the moral reality, and yet do it in a context that, that if you look at it, makes sense. Jesus is saying, you say I'm not the Messiah. Why do you say I'm not the Messiah? Because you don't even believe in me and no one else believes in me. But that's no proof that I'm not the Messiah because you're not being drawn by God. And by the way, he's the one that has to draw, but you don't believe because it's your fault you don't believe. Wow, right next to one another in the same passage, man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. So he draws those lines, he harmonizes them. Sometimes he puts them in a paradoxical sense and I can't do anything with it. I stop right there and I'm in awe. The evil men put Jesus to death, but they were concurrently doing exactly what God had predestined to occur. That means every moment, every thought, every detail, every word, the nails, the blood, the cross, the false testimonies, the mock trial, the, you know, illegal arrest, the last words. And you remember how he proved that? He said it would happen centuries before it happened. He even gave specifics, even words. Remember, they cast lots. And, and particular events down to the meticulous detail. God predestined them to occur and carried them out exactly as he wanted. Even though all the hu human future free choices would have potentially threatened that it not happen. And so meticulous sovereignty is, is bothersome to some in theology because they're afraid that not only does that make us seem logically like robots, but somehow God then is not off the hook. And God doesn't apologize for saying, I've ordained it all. I'm using it all. And you're, you must get up every day, make your choices for which you'll be accountable. Isn't, isn't, your, isn't victory in Christ the same way? <laughs> be strong. You be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. It does seem just a little unfair that when I fail, it's my fault. And when I succeed, it's his credit. To the flesh and to our logic, that seems a little unfair. I put forth some effort here, didn't I? 
can I get some moral credit? No one says that. No one says, I get all the credit for this one, Lord. I mean, yeah, you were there, I tapped, but I tapped into it. I obeyed your commands. How about a little credit here? No, that's foolish talk. We know it's foolish talk. And yet, in a non-meticulous uh, framework, we should be able to take credit because God didn't plan it all and I had to contribute my part in and of myself because I'm fairly autonomous. In order to be morally held responsible, I have to be that. So says that framework. So be careful of that. Stay where Scripture keeps it. And if there are parallel lines that seem to cross, but God harmonizes them, but he doesn't show us out on the horizon until eternity when he harmonizes them and how, I'm okay with that. He can draw the line. Brian. We've, we've thought about all this evil that man has perpetrated under the ordination of God. Carry it a step further, though. I mean, we think of the worst event that's ever happened to be the crucifixion. Besides all the human suffering, presumably the suffering that God himself, the Father, did in pouring out his wrath on the Son for not just one person's sins, but all the sins who have ever believed in him. Presumably that was the worst suffering that I could imagine. That God did that directly himself and he was pleased to do it. Why did he do it? Well, he loved us, he redeemed us, but ultimately it was mainly for his glory. So right. the magnification of his glory, and I read Peterson's book, frankly I thought he had a couple of logical leaps that he didn't support all Wait, the time. Who, who's? Peterson. Um, the, the one you just referenced. Christensen? Scott Christensen? I thought it was Peterson. but Yeah, yeah. Uh, Christensen. Sorry, yeah. sorry. Um, but the magnification of God's glory is all that makes sense to me. That it, it harmonizes with what we see across Scripture. It's all for God's glory. So I, I think you explained it wonderfully, and it's so practical for our daily lives, as you explained. Probably a uh, difficulty we've had is passing that on to those in our sphere of influence, our family, our wife, our children, because we don't talk enough about deep waters that we don't tend to have all the answers for. We're afraid of that, but we shouldn't be intimidated to, as um, you've said, Brian, push all the way to where the Bible takes us. And his glory, it, it always does continue to come back to, there must be in the intrinsic perfections of God, this longing to manifest, not because he's missing something, but when he desired to create and decided to create, this manifesting of his glory to his creation in a way that especially human beings who are made in his image and redeemed will experience for all eternity that swallows up the answers we didn't have. The questions we had about it swallows them up, infinitely swallowing them up. And we're called to believe that now, right now, to make a difference in our understanding of natural and moral evil as we experience it in a fallen world. We are to believe these greater things and rejoice always and say like Joseph, you meant it for evil, but God means it for good, for his glory. 
And we, we want that to mean something for me right now in relief. But it, it can't always mean relief if God will magnify his glory in a greater way through our lack of relief in this life. He doesn't always give relief right away. But always restoration. It's always a part of restoration because redemption is a part of it. So, All right. Uh, we we got to finish this, so let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, take these meager attempts to explain this from your word. Take us back to your word and humble us with it and take us into our spheres of influence as men rejoicing and revering you, sober-minded, humbled, hating sin all the more, but loving redemption in even greater ways. And use us to magnify you, we pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.